All right, so the, the second half of John's gospel is uh, often called the book of glory. And it's called the book of glory because it concerns mostly uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, so what takes place during these chapters is that John zooms way in and the pace of the story stretches way out. And so we have about eight chapters covering less than a week of activity. And so in these chapters, we see Jesus preparing his disciples for his soon departure. So there's some, excuse me, a very lengthy speech by Jesus from chapters 14 through 16 is just one solid speech by Jesus, which is a fantastic opportunity, almost unparalleled in the New Testament, to really get the heart of what Jesus is doing in his redemptive ministry and in his journey to the cross. And that concludes with a prayer in John 17 that's called the high priestly prayer where he prays for his people, both the ones who were there with him and for those who would believe through their word. And that's us and all Christians throughout the ages who have followed in his footsteps. And then, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection and then a few appearances of Jesus to his disciples afterwards. So that is all that takes place within chapters 13 through 21 of John's gospel. So we begin looking at this second half, the book of glory, today in John chapter 13. I'd like to first just read verse 1 for you in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, this is a beautiful introduction, not only to the event that we'll see today, in Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, but really to this second half of the gospel, to this whole book of glory. This one sentence provides us the context of the action to unfold and summarizes the unending love in Jesus' heart for his people that will become clearer and clearer in the ensuing chapters. So this verse is an overview of and an introduction to this whole section of John's gospel, the so-called book of glory. So read with me now verses 1 through 17. Follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. John 13, beginning again in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I believe that the physical act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is intended by Jesus himself and by John in his gospel as a symbol to represent the cleansing from sin that Jesus would provide in his death on the cross. I believe that the physical act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet was intended as a symbol of the cleansing from sin that Jesus would provide in his death on the cross. I think that's what the story is all about. If you wanted to put that into a little pithy, memorable, possibly even a rhyme kind of a format, it might sound something like this. In order to share in his endless life, we must be cleansed by the cross of Christ. I realize that's a little cheesy, but it might be helpful. In order to share in his endless life, we must be cleansed by the cross of Christ. I think that is the message that Jesus is preaching to his disciples without words at this point. So let's walk through this and see how that is and and what the, the heart of Jesus' act of service to the disciples is here. The first thing to note is is just to make the observation that the shadow of the cross looms large in this passage. And really, again, throughout this half of John's gospel, remember, we're slowing down, we're zooming in. This is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure because he's going to die and rise and then ascend to heaven, right? So the cross is just around the corner. And in fact, it tells us that before the feast of the Passover, he gathered with his disciples for a meal. So this is on the eve of Passover, which means this is Thursday night before Jesus will go to the cross on Friday. So this is really Jesus' last night with his disciples before his crucifixion. So John intends to tell us that this Passover feast, which, remember, would celebrate, would remember and celebrate God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, 
and specifically how he spared for them their firstborn sons through the slaughtering of a lamb and the smearing of its blood upon their doorpost. Thus the angel of death would pass over their home. So I don't think it's an accident that God planned for the crucifixion of Jesus to take place during the Passover as he is the true Passover lamb. And we remember John the Baptist observing about Jesus in chapter 1 of John's gospel. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we know this is the feast of Passover. We know that the cross is just around the corner. It tells us there in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Throughout The first half of John's gospel, he told us repeatedly that Jesus' hour had not yet come. Jesus himself said that back in John 2 when he was at a wedding and he turned water into wine. When his mother had come to him and said, do something, they're out of wine. He said, my hour has not yet come. And he didn't mean the time to do something publicly miraculous because that's in fact what he did. He meant the hour, the appointed time of his death, and resurrection. In chapter 7 and 8 of John's gospel, we saw Pharisees and scribes attempting to arrest Jesus or to stone Jesus because of some pronouncement he had made about his divine identity, and they didn't like it, and they thought it was blasphemous, and so they went to get him, and it said, but they were unable because his hour had not yet come. That's been the the theme or the the motif of John throughout the first 12 chapters is it's not time yet. The hour hasn't yet come. But back in John 12, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he began to speak about the purpose of his life and the mission that would lead him to the cross. And so as of the middle of John 12, the hour is here. The hour has arrived, and so now he's with his disciples that night before his arrest and crucifixion. And so the hour, the appointed time of his mission to be accomplished, to take the sins of his people upon himself and go to the cross, has arrived. And then I remember that phrase at the end of chapter 1 that says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's not just talking about what Jesus is about to do in the washing of the disciples' feet. He's talking about he's going to carry his love for his people all the way to the cross, all the way to death. So the shadow of the cross colors this whole thing for us. So as we read and consider Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, we will miss the point if we don't have the cross in view and what Jesus is about to accomplish. Verses 2 and 3, John introduces us uh, once again to Judas, who's been one of Jesus' close disciples, one of the band of 12 that's followed him for three years, and he reminds us that Judas is going to play a, a heinous and wicked role, however, a purposeful and divinely planned role in the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus got up from the supper. 
right? So we'll focus a little more on Judas next week because in the verses following where we just stopped, verses 18 through 30, we'll get a little bit more of a look at what's going on in terms of the story, uh, how the, the crucifixion is going to move forward, and Judas plays a big role in that. So we'll spend some time next week kind of thinking together about Judas and the role he played and what maybe lessons we have to learn from that. So we don't need to get too um, bogged down in the details for now about Judas. But for now, just an observation. Judas having betrayal in his heart is contrasted immediately with Jesus having all authority in his hands. Look there in verse 2. It said, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, not his Judas, his Jesus. The Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. And that's where the, the action of this uh, foot washing is going to take place. And so John intentionally puts in the same breath, Judas' plan to betray Jesus, that the devil had put in his heart, and the authority that Jesus has. The Father has given all things into his hands. We know how this ends. We know things are about to get bad, and it's easy to think that the wheels are starting to come off, right? We watch the betrayal of one of his closest followers, and suddenly he's arrested, and now he's getting beaten, and now he's being falsely accused. Like God's plan for Jesus' life and ministry is about to be derailed somehow. Oh no, that's not what's supposed to happen. But just take this comment as a reminder that the death of Jesus and all the sins and treachery that lead up to it are part of God's plan and will in no wise thwart his saving purposes. And so Jesus rises and he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around his waist and he begins washing the disciples' feet. Now that sounds weird, sounds kind of gross, probably a little uncomfortable, but we probably, unless we think about this a little bit, don't get how incredibly humble this act of service is. The washing of feet was an extremely menial task, one reserved for servants or slaves. And in fact, most Jews wouldn't even allow their Jewish servants to perform this task and reserved it for Gentile servants because it was considered so beneath them, beneath the dignity of God's people, even a servant in a household, to perform this task. And if you think about it, dudes walk around in sandals or barefoot, and the streets are crowded with goats and pigeons for sacrifice. Remember, we're in the Passover week, so roads are pretty gross. These feet are probably pretty nasty, right? These are grody, nasty feet. Stinky, dirty, crusty, nasty feet, right? No wonder you would only give this job to a slave, and a Gentile slave at that won't even let my Jewish slave do this. And yet observe the humility of our Lord. The high king of heaven, the creator of the universe, the eternal son of God, stooping at 
the filthy feet of poor fishermen, performing a task so low that even Jewish slaves weren't eligible to perform it. I'm reminded of Jesus' own words in Matthew 20, 28, where he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But remember that our understanding of what's going on here must be shaped by the cross looming in the shadow here. There is a deeper truth than merely an act of humility. It's nothing less than that. It's an incredible act of service and humility on the part of Jesus. But there's a deeper truth, an act of symbolism that infuses this beautiful act of humility with even more precious and amazing meaning. And that meaning will become clearer as we observe how Peter responds in verses 6 through 9. Not surprisingly, considering how lowly this task is, Peter is a little bit unsure that he's willing to go through with this. So he says, when the Lord comes to Simon Peter, so he's just one by one washing their feet, and he comes to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And that is the sense, the, the emphasis is on this pronoun, you? You of all people are going to wash my feet? Like this is backwards if ever anything was backwards. You should not be the one washing my feet. It's a little bit like John the Baptist when Jesus came to him to be baptized. And the Baptist, you remember, said, I should be coming to you to be baptized. And yet you're coming to me? So once again, we see the humility of Jesus taking on the role not of Lord and Master and Ruler, but of servant. And so Peter objects. You wash my feet? And his sense of outrage of scandal is right he is rightly scandalized by the notion of the noble king christ bowing low and performing so humble a task and jesus doesn't correct him for his sense of scandal he doesn't say no this is no big deal what do you mean but he assures him that in due time he will come to understand he says afterward you will understand after what I don't think he just means right after I wash your feet. I think he means after the glorification of Christ. That is, after the cross and the resurrection, it will become clear to you, which is another, I think, hint that what's going on in this foot washing is pointing to the reality of the cross. Well, Peter's not convinced. Even with this assurance, you'll get it later. He says, he flat out refuses. Lord, you will never wash my feet. I won't let this happen. I can't. I can't put myself above you and to see you stoop so low. Here's the crux of this whole passage, this whole event in verse 8, the second part of verse 8, when Jesus responds to him. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. Why is the washing of Peter's feet 
necessary for his participation with Jesus, for his place in God's family, for his part in God's kingdom? Why is the washing of his feet so utterly essential to Peter playing a part in his family and having a share with him? It only makes sense if the washing of their feet symbolizes the forgiveness of sins that would take place through his death on the cross. If Peter will not, by faith, allow Jesus' atoning death on the cross to cover his sins and declare him clean before God, he will be excluded from God's people, enjoying no share in Christ. Because the cross shapes our understanding of what's going on here. He's not saying you got to have clean feet to be a follower of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is you must be cleansed. You must be forgiven. Your sin must be removed. And the only way to do that is to receive the cleansing that will come through the cross. Here's a hard truth, folks. We are sinners. We are broken. We are wrecked by evil, rebellious hearts that treasure our own glory, our own pleasure, our own passions over and above those of our Creator. John told Nicodemus, Jesus, excuse me, told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's how messed up we are. To see God's kingdom, we have to start all over. We need a new heart, a new mind, a new life, a new righteousness. That's what it takes to enter God's presence. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Him who is clean in hand and pure of heart. Who can do that? Who among us is clean in hand and pure of heart? We're all broken wrecked sinners. That's what Jesus provides us with through his death on the cross. Titus 2.14 tells us that he gave himself for us, that is, died on the cross, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We've got to be purified. We've got to be cleansed. We've got to be forgiven if we're going to be a part of his family, if we're going to have a share with Christ. And so the washing of Peter's feet is this symbolic representation of what he's about to do for real on the cross. I am going to bear your sins. And unless you receive that cleansing, you have no part in me. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what this is about. Let me ask you, in the words of an old hymn, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour are you washed in the blood of the lamb i love peter's response 
Jesus has made it clear, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. If you don't receive this cleansing, you can't be mine. And so he says in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If that's what it means, if this washing thing is so important to you that I can't be yours if I don't let you wash me, then bring it on. More than my feet. Just pour that water on me. Let's have the whole thing. Jesus obviously was right about Peter not yet fully understanding what he's doing, but you have to admire Peter's total sincerity here. I think this is absolute devotion in heart to him. Wash me all. But Jesus' response in verse 10 not only serves to correct Peter's misunderstanding, but to provide us with very precious assurance. Look at Jesus in verse 10 and 11. He said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Through the washing of the cross, the cleansing from sin that Jesus' blood would provide, no further bathing would be required. One cleansing for all time. One cleansing and you're clean for good. Perhaps in this sense, the the washing of feet symbolizes our ongoing need to confess our sins and to continue trusting in the grace that flows to us from Calvary's cross. But Jesus seems to be saying here, the cross is enough. The cross is enough. You don't have to get cleaned again. There's a book by J.D. Greer that's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And it's all about the sense of assurance that we can have that when we belong to him, we're his. It's done, it's settled, it's finished. You don't have to get washed again. All you gotta wash is your feet because you think about a guy taking a bath and then walking even across the road to his friend's house or something across these dusty roads, his feet need to be cleaned again. And I think maybe maybe that symbolizes our just need to confess our sins and be continually aware of our need for his grace but you don't need a fresh cleansing you don't need to get baptized six times you don't need to come forward down the aisle again and say oh can I be a Christian can I be a Christian can I be a Christian if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to forgive your sins you're clean once and for all you're clean Charles Spurgeon, the great London Baptist preacher in the 19th century, said, He that believeth in Christ is fully forgiven. He is like a man who has gone into the bath and washed, but when he steps out of the bath and put his foot on the ground, he often soils it, so that before he robes himself, he needs to wash his feet again. That is our condition as believers in Jesus. We are washed in his precious blood and are whiter than snow, But these feet of ours constantly touch this defiling earth, so they need every day to be washed, right? And that washing is not a from-scratch sinner repenting and becoming righteous. It's just the ongoing need for awareness of our sin and awareness of our need for God's grace to us every day. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me, no share with me. This is what it comes down to. Have you been washed 
in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus again draws a little bit of attention to Judas when he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, John gives us some commentary. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So again, we'll spend more time with Judas next week. So just bookmark that in your mind. In these final few verses, verses 12 through 17, Jesus essentially is going to tell his disciples Follow my example. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, I am. I am your Lord, your master, your rabbi, your your teacher. He acknowledges his status, his position above the disciples. But then he says in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also do as I have done to you. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Right? If I have humbled myself, and I'm the master, I'm the Lord, I'm the king, I'm the creator, I've humbled myself to serve you, how much more then is it on you to humble yourself and serve one another? We're just a few verses away now from one of the strongest and most intimidating and yet beautiful commands of Jesus in all of the New Testament when he's going to tell his disciples, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come to that. But follow my example. A servant is not greater than his master, and yet your master has positioned himself beneath you in this way, and you should do the same. And then he concludes that statement by saying, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not blessed are you if you sit around and think about them. Not blessed are you if you get together with Christian friends and talk about how nice it would be to serve one another. Not blessed are you if you complain about how others aren't doing this for you. Blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus, just like James in James 1.22, essentially gives this exhortation. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So here's how I think this works together. We have here this, cla- this clear, powerful, symbolic demonstration of the cleansing power of Jesus' death on the cross. The truth portrayed in Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is that those who look in faith to the death of Christ in their place will find their sins forgiven and their lives made new. That's what you've got going on here. And then we have an exhortation from the Lord to follow the example of his humble service by doing the same for one another, by washing one another's feet in a thousand meaningful, practical ways, serving one another. Here's how I think this goes together. A life that has received the cleansing power of Jesus' death is a life marked by humble love and service to others. If we've been cleansed from our sin by the blood of Jesus, we've been given a new heart, we've been born again, like he told Nicodemus in John 3, and we have new desires new instincts, new priorities, and those priorities will include 
the humble loving and serving of others. So come to Jesus for cleansing in the cross and then bend that grace outward to others in humble love and service. So I can't conclude in a better way than reading for you the beautiful words of Philippians chapter 2, which not only exhort us to this kind of humble love and service, it also points again to the example of Jesus Christ who embodied this service so fully. Philippians 2, beginning of verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.